Dr. David J. Scorton is president and CEO of the Association of American Medical Colleges, a not-for-profit institution that represents the nation's medical schools, teaching hospitals, and academic societies. Dr. Scorton previously served as the 13th secretary of the Smithsonian Institution and the president of the University of Iowa and Cornell University. Today, he discusses the effect of this pandemic on healthcare enterprises throughout the country and what he thinks it will take for society to return to normal. Let's listen in. Thanks, Nancy, and it's my pleasure to be here. It's uh, more my pleasure to introduce uh, uh, my dear friend David Scorton, MD, who is president and CEO of the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, which is a not-for-profit institution that represents the nation's medical schools uh, and the teaching hospitals and academic societies. Uh, recently, uh, uh, David uh, served as the 13th secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, where you always saw 19 museums, 21 libraries, the National Zoo, numerous research centers, and education programs. Uh, prior to that, he served as president of Cornell University, where I worked very closely with him for 11 years. And prior to that, as uh, president of the University of Iowa, uh, where he served on the faculty for 26 years and specialized in the treatment of adolescents and adults with congenital, congenital heart disease. Uh, David uh, has uh, uh, done amazing things in education, uh, in medicine, and uh, uh, he's here to talk to us about um, life in a post-coronavirus uh, uh, era. So uh, without further ado, uh, David, if you would unmute yourself and uh, uh, talk to us, and then we're happy to uh, throw questions at you. Sounds good, Andrew. Thank you very much, and Nancy. Thanks for spending some time with me. Um, before we start, I want to congratulate you all on uh, on what No Labels has been doing. I've been following you uh, from the wings uh, ever since uh, you got it started. Andrew told me about it when it was first founded, and I think it's a just a terrific idea and a terrific concept and a terrific organization. So, congratulations. So I'll tell you a little tiny bit more about the organization that I'm in right now, the AAMC, which Andrew already told you the basic facts. Let me just fill them in a little tiny bit. So our members include all of the accredited medical schools in the U.S. and Canada and the 400 major teaching hospitals. So we have many, many um, of our teaching hospitals in New York, all the big ones who are dealing with the uh, tremendous strain of the coronavirus pandemic our member institutions, and 51 VA hospitals, and about 80 academic societies. And our world, like your world, has been turned uh, upside down. And I'll tell you a little tiny bit at the beginning, if I might, Andrew, about uh, the effect on the healthcare enterprises of the country of this pandemic. So first of all, as you know, um, this came uh, as a surprise in many ways, the name of the virus that's causing COVID-19 is the SARS-CoV-2 virus with the SARS on it because uh, SARS and MERS were both uh, disorders uh, caused by a, a coronavirus. And this one has been called a novel coronavirus because it's different than the others and has a couple of uh, very interesting uh, features. One is that 
um, it can be spread from people who are completely asymptomatic. And that makes it very, very hard to estimate the actual reach of the disorder. And if you think about other virus disorders that we're familiar with, especially influenza or things that cause a, a common cold, you tend to think about the people as being mainly infectious when they start to feel bad or maybe a day or two before. And this unusual, if not unique, virus uh, has uh, the ability to spread uh, from people who are completely asymptomatic. And then secondly, uh, this is a big, um, a big change for the medical profession because as of right now today, uh, or let's say as of a few days ago, there was no specific treatment that we could give uh, to these patients. But what we were doing was supportive care, giving them advice to take it easy, uh, take a load off, stay home, uh, try not to spread it to others. If the person had trouble breathing, uh, come into the hospital, maybe get oxygen. If that didn't do the job, more intensive therapy. If things really got bad, a ventilator with hopes that one would be able to get off the ventilator. These are the sort of things that are uh, nightmares to healthcare workers because what healthcare workers are taught to do is to specifically treat the disorder, whatever it may be, like a lock, and you have a key to open that lock and treat specifically what, what is ailing the patient. In this, uh, in this case, up to just a few days ago, there was nothing specific that we could do. And what would the options be? One option would be to be able to give a treatment that would actually uh, fight the virus, either preventing it from multiplying or in some other way, uh, slowing it down or destroying it so the body's own immune system could come through and win the battle. And as I'm sure you followed closely in the last few days, the drug remdesivir was shown in one promising clinical trial to uh, shorten the course of severe coronavirus and probably to reduce the death toll, probably because it didn't quite reach the level of definite significance, but probably uh, it does cause some, some modest decrease in, um, in mortality. But the big problem with us uh, deciding just how severe this disorder is, and the big problem in deciding what to do as the pandemic wanes, and things that have got to be on your mind like they are on my mind, when is it safe to go back with each other? When is it safe to reopen a business that can't be run completely uh, in a virtual sense? The big problem we have is that we really don't have a handle on how many cases are out there because of two things, the asymptomatic uh, spread and the fact that right to this day, the testing has not been what we need. There's been great strides made. And uh, one of the great um, privileges of this time for me has been the ability to work with the White House Coronavirus Task Force and with many other federal agencies. And there are a bunch of very smart, very well-intentioned people working on this, but still on May 5th, we don't have the testing that, that we need. And uh, I think there is gonna be some light on the horizon about that. Uh, the, the, uh, the government action and other actions, the number of tests is going up and up and up. Depends on who you ask as to how many tests we would need to feel very secure to widely reopen the country. A recent study out of a, a center at Harvard suggested that that number, this is gonna sound completely astronomical, might be as high as 5 million tests a day and maybe going up to the need for as many as 20 million tests a day. Many, many multiples of what we're able to do right now. 
these kind of tests that you're hearing about are usually referring to something called a PCR test, PCR standing for polymerase chain reaction. And it's a test that utilizes an assessment of the genetic material of the virus. There's also a kind of test that we're more familiar with, which actually detects the presence of the virus, a so-called antigen test. And a bacterial version of that that you're familiar with is if you think you or a loved one has a strep throat, you go to the doctor, they swab your throat, and in a very short time, you find out if you're positive or negative for strep. There's a lot of work going on to develop and multiply the number of those kind of antigen tests that would be so-called point-of-care testing that in a very short time, you would know, or that of a loved one at the doctor's office or some other facility, whether or not uh, the coronavirus was detected. So there is some light over the horizon, both on treatment and on uh, testing. But right now, we don't have enough tests to be able to give intelligent answers as to exactly how, when, uh, and where to reopen our society. Ultimately, of course, we're all hoping that we very soon have a vaccine. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of vaccine trials going on now all over the world. I'm sure you've been reading about them. Uh, some that have gotten prominent uh, press coverage have been the Oxford uh, trial and also a product uh, by uh, Pfizer, and there's others, many others. And I'm very confident that we will, within a year, have some sort of vaccine available to us. A year sounds like a very long time from the month of May. Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, the head of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the nation's top infectious disease expert, feels that it's conceivable that we may have the virus as early as January, the middle of the winter. And so when we have those armamentaria together, more widespread testing, direct treatment for the virus and vaccines, we'll be able to deal with even recurrences if this turns out to be a cyclical virus. But right now we're doing supportive care and we're doing mitigation, as you well know, through social distancing, the use of masks reminding you, I know you know this, that masks really stop you from hurting someone else. They're not that good for stopping the virus from coming to you. They're mainly there to stop, stop it from coming out from you if you cough or sneeze or even, uh, even just uh, talking and breathing. And so uh, the country is dealing with an incredibly difficult economic situation, one that none of us in our professional lifetimes have ever dealt with. And unlike, um, unlike other situations that we've been in, as has been uh, so uh, eloquently stated in the media and by uh, economists, this is very different than anything we've faced because we have chosen to shut down the economy to protect life. And the number of cases and the number of deaths is up, is continuing to go up. And um, those who do modeling of, of this disorder, as you know, in the last few days, since we've begun to open up different parts of society and uh, just human nature, loosen the rigor of the mitigation, the rigor of social distancing, they're projecting a, a much larger number of cases and deaths. So it's a tough, tough situation. And yet we have to begin to look ahead. We have to begin to find ways uh, to open up uh, and return to some, some semblance of normal. Um, the, um, Academic medical centers, the places where we always go when our loved ones or we are the sickest, uh, for uh, three-fourths roughly of the level one trauma centers in the country 
or at academic health centers and the hospitals in New York and uh, elsewhere um, who are dealing with the toughest cases are academic health centers. And they are among, those workers are among the frontline uh, responders, first responders, whatever you want to call it in this, in this pandemic. And I want to just share with you some ways that your neighbors who are working in these facilities are frontline workers. Obviously, those who are healthcare workers literally taking their lives in their hands to do this are frontline workers. Also, those who work as technicians, nurses, other healthcare workers, same story, taking their lives in their hands and indirectly the lives of their families. And then also those who work in the laboratories, the clinical laboratories and the research laboratories, working on new ways to test, new ways to treat, new ways to prevent are also frontline workers. And I bring this up not only to laud them, but to say that this pandemic and having to treat people with supportive care and not having the way to actually cure them right now and having the fear of bringing a virus home to one's family, even if one is asymptomatic, is taking its toll on the mental health and overall health of our frontline health workers. And in New York, of course, you've had the tragedy of the suicide by um, a very prominent physician in the New York Presbyterian family at the Allen Hospital. And um, okay. that's been just uh, just one example of the stress that's being put on health workers. So there's a quick rundown, Andrew, of a few top line items. I'm very glad to take questions. Whatever you have, I'll do my best to answer them. So thank you for having me. Hi, thank you very much for your time and appreciate you joining us. Of course. I, I've been following the testing issue closely and actually I have my own personal daily tracker of how many tests we're doing in the United States. And you know, where you look at countries that have successfully implemented testing as a means of limiting spread, they've also done that with a tracing and iso uh, contact tracing and isolation that goes along with it, which I don't think in the United States we have the, the stomach for from a civil liberties perspective. Um, which then I think point is how you get to Harvard's conclusion that you need something like 5 million daily tests or something certainly well in excess of the roughly 240,000 that we're running the day right now. Um, is there a better or, or more uh, strategically effective way that we could apply the testing that we're using um, in a way that it would have more effect? Um, you know, right now we're not, uh, it's testing when you feel sick or to, to confirm someone has COVID. Uh, we have reports here in Houston, Texas, of testing facilities not even being used because not enough people are feeling sick. Are there ways that we could be more effectively using the 240 or 50,000? Hopefully that'll increase number. Um, can we use those tests more effectively to get greater leverage out of them um, versus, you know, how they're being, how it's being approached today or how it's being discussed for the future? It's a question of the hour, and I wish I had a perfect intelligent answer to give you. I don't, but I'll tell you what people are talking about. So one thing people are talking about is actually doing whatever is necessary to ramp the number of tests up. And there are levers we haven't pulled yet to, to do that. So some of the, as you know very well, because you're, you've become an expert in this, um, big uh, uh, commercial labs can do so-called high-throughput testing. They can crank out a lot of tests, relatively speaking. They take a while to get back. You have to get the swab. You have to put it in a transport medium. You have to get it to that lab, and they have to run the test. Many of the academic health centers, including the ones in Houston, New York, and all the places where you have academic health centers, are developing their own tests, their own PCR tests. 
many of whom can be turned around quicker, they're hamstrung by supplies of a wide variety of types. It was ironic and very frustrating at the beginning of this pandemic, which after all was not too long ago, that the swabs, many of them were made in Northern Italy. And their Northern Italy was stuck with a tremendous surge of cases and they weren't shipping those things. And so from the swabs to the reagents that are used to extract the viral uh, DNA, the viral hereditary material from the swab and so on, we have not, uh, we have not had a chance to do that. We um, have put out, a, I wrote a letter to Dr. Burks a few weeks ago after a very, uh, very uh, gracious conversation she had with some of the folks who run the clinical labs and academic health centers in which I laid out three things that I thought we could do to really move this along. And I'll very quickly tell you what those are because I think we could still do them. Number one would be to establish a web portal where uh, labs here and there and everywhere, labs at academic health centers could, could put on that web portal what they're missing. The second step would be that the government would actually manage the supply chain at the national level, at the federal level. This also goes against the decentralized way we do things in America, but it would allow us to get some control of the supply chain, which may or may not work just on a free market basis, in my opinion. And then thirdly, to have a lot of transparency over where there are problems with supplies. Everyone can sort of, by whatever method, focus attention there. So that's one thing, is to up it. The second one, which I think you're actually uh, asking more directly about is if we can't up the number of tests, could we deploy them in a more strategic fashion? And the trouble there is that the asymptomatic nature of the disease makes every physician and public health worker want to do more testing of people who are going to be in close proximity to each other. So for example, in my opinion, this is not based on data, just trying to give you a straightforward answer um, sort of off the cuff. If you were running an organization of whatever type in which people could work effectively from home for a period of time until there were treatments, and even if necessary, till there was a vaccine, you probably wouldn't have to worry as much about testing for people who weren't ill because the social distancing and the mitigation would be working. If you're in a situation where you're reopening it, I think you will need to give uh, testing, even if they're not symptomatic, to the people who are going to be in most contact during those during those episodes. Now, if we all climb on the metro or the subway, it's not going to be possible by any stretch of the imagination to test everybody who gets on there or to do symptom catalogs and, and uh, temperature testing. So we're going to have to ask for whatever other mitigation uh, things that we can do. And think about cities with tall buildings like Houston, New York, Washington. Are we going to put 12 people in an elevator? and have them sit in the elevator together, uh, not knowing who is, has the disease and who hasn't got the disease. Are we gonna go on, on metros and subways? And so that's a, that's a, sort, of a um, sort of a quandary that, that we're stuck in. There's been a very interesting paper that just came out in the Harvard Business Review. And um, Andrew, I will, or Nancy, I will uh, dig up that link and send it to you so you can forward it to everybody on the call. That is an attempt to uh, suggest a, a complex mechanism where we wouldn't have to have a larger number of tests and um, a combination of certain kind of so-called smart social distancing with a little ramp up in the tests and a more strategic deployment of them. And I'll send that to you through Andrew and Nancy. I'll try to get that link to you before uh, before the end of the day today. 
Thanks for the question. You got the, the Zeidman brothers, uh, Fred and then Bob. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we just got through with my cousin, Jonathan. So this is becoming the Zeidman show today. <laughs> uh, in answering Jonathan's uh, question, you might have addressed basically what I was going to ask. But if, have, have we settled on a suite of tests that are acceptable uh, to find out? And what are the real bottlenecks? Uh, in testing the number of people uh, that need to be testing or testing the general population? And how do we uh, address that in the immediate future, knowing this is, for all intents and purposes, a fairly short-term uh, problem? Well, um, I, I tried to answer uh, in, in your colleague's question a few minutes ago, although I never really answered his question, is there a better strategy if you can't increase the test because I think that uh, increasing the test is a is a, a cornerstone of it. But I will send you that uh, note from uh, HBR. Um, let me say it again uh, in, in a different way. So what you need to do the tests are a few items. You have to have a, a box, a machine that'll do them. You have to have the reagents and materials to do the test. That is um, a swab something called the transport medium to get it to the, to the machine from wherever the patient was. And then you have to have the chemicals to actually do the test in the machine. You have to have a human being to do it right now. None of the tests are fully automated. That human being has to have personal protective equipment because they're going to be dealing with potentially infectious material. And right up till the minute, there has been a shortage of all those different things, except for the trained people. We have quite a few trained people who can do it. We haven't had the PPE, we haven't had the um, supplies, and we haven't had a singular national view of where the needs are the greatest. And they've been quite unpredictable, quite unpredictable. Um, and so um, that's, been, that's been what the problem has been. It would be a big step forward if we had widespread availability of antigen testing as opposed to PCR testing. Antigen testing, much easier to do, quick. Again, think strep test. And there's a lot of work going on right now to try to bring that around. To, to fill out the discussion of testing, I'm sure many of you have heard about antibody testing, which is a little different. That's measuring your response to the infection, should you have had it, and whether you're building up immune uh, uh, chemicals in your blood to fight it. There, we're still hamstrung by a lack of enough data to know if the antibodies we identify will keep you safe or just reduce the severity of the disease. And if it will either reduce the severity or prevent it, we don't know yet how long that immunity would last. One year, if it's a seasonal uh, virus like the flu is, if it mutates year to year. So I, it's frustrating because you're asking me straight questions and I can't give you complete straight answers because we're still feeling our way through a novel infection, but that's where we are. Bob Zeidman. Hi, Dr. Scorton. Uh, so I have a uh, question that I've asked some other, of the other experts that we've had on these calls, and, uh, but I, I don't completely understand the answer. And maybe the answer is in the Harvard paper that you're going to distribute. But it's my understanding that uh, countries like Sweden, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea have done a great job of controlling the spread without the testing. So my question is, 
if they've been able to successfully do it, well, either, either that's wrong and we've been misinformed or if that's right, why don't we follow the procedures that they've used to control uh, the spread, even though the testing isn't perfected yet? Well, the, the colleague, your colleague, a couple of questions ago talked about our attitude towards civil liberties and uh, wanting to go our own way in this country. It's one of the great beauties of the United States. It's why my father came across from Russia during the last big pandemic, the 1917 pandemic. But um, we have not had the uh, severity of uh, lockdown, whatever you want to call it, that some of the countries have had. We just haven't. And uh, as you can see with uh, what's happening in the country right now, depending on where you live, um, there's a very, very strong backlash in some quarters against continuing to have social distancing and, um, and uh, a sort of a, uh, a very strict policy of staying away from each other for good and understandable reasons. People are very, very worried about the economy and worried about not, not the economy in a theoretical sense, but what it's doing to their own lives and their families and their livelihoods. And um, one thing that I'm very concerned about as we reopen is whether we will have the will, both personal will and political will, to uh, reclose if we reopen too soon and things begin to get out of control. And you've seen a little hint of a prediction of that, just a prediction from the modeling out of Seattle, where uh, the um, opening up that's occurred has led them to greatly, greatly increase their estimates of the total death toll of the pandemic. Now, you know, models are only as good as the data that you put in. And the data is always, to some extent, um, a guess, because we don't really have the testing capability to know exactly how broadly the infection has spread already in asymptomatic people. But um, that's, that's a, a big part of the reason we're, we're just different in that, in that regard. And the other thing is that we also have uh, some populations in the country that have uh, been shown to be particularly hard hit by the coronavirus. And um, in Washington, for example, uh, with a, a very large uh, homeless population, a very large African-American population, the wards in Washington, for those of you who know Washington, wards five, seven, and eight are really being clobbered by this, by this pandemic. And the pandemic didn't cause the health inequities for these vulnerable populations. But let's face it, we as a society have failed to ameliorate those health inequities over generations. And so we also have those problems in our society as well. And um, the problems that come from this in our country are also somewhat linked and the pressure to go back to work is also somewhat linked to our somewhat peculiar way of having health insurance coverage. 180 million people are covered through their employers. So when employment goes down, goes south, a lot of people use their health coverage. They get two notices, right? They get a notice that their job has been eliminated or furloughed, and then pretty soon they'll get a notice they don't have health insurance coverage. So one of the things that we've been talking with the government about is ways that they could help uh, have more people insured dur during a time like this. For example, by uh, putting some federal money into COBRA coverage for people who are just out of work or opening up the marketplaces uh, again and more widely related to the ACA. Um, but that's another issue that's been hard for us. People uh, will not go for medical care when they can't afford it. We know that that's a, a real phenomenon. And all that is quite different in our country than in other countries that have 
some sort of uh, more general coverage for healthcare. And I'm not uh, uh, um, advocating for Medicare for all or anything like that. I'm just pointing out a difference between us and most other developed countries. So those are some differences. There we go. Uh, while we're talking about the crisis at hand, I was wondering if you could take this group a little further into the future. Uh, the schools of medicine around the United States are viewed as important community assets. Mm -hmm. The civic community sometimes talk about them as if they were NFL stadiums. And there are other groups like the public health groups that are looking for new things, new connectivity in terms of public health and technology from medical schools. So I, while we have you, I, I would love to hear kind of a generational take on where transformation should take place. And if there are new medical schools, how do you see their role changing in the regions that they serve? Well, we could talk about this for the next five hours. This is what I what I think we should come out of this pandemic with is a little different view of how we should do a lot of things. So those of you like Andrew who are on uh, boards of medical schools will know that we classically talk about the so-called tripartite mission of academic medicine, that we do education, we do research, and of course we do patient care. And what's missing in that tripartite mission that we are now calling a four-legged stool at the AAMC is a, a leg of community collaborations, by which I mean public health, health equity, population health. And because we have focused more uh, in our country on the individual interaction between a doctor and a patient, and although the biggest increases in life expectancy in our country have been basically due to public health measures, and of course, there's been other increases in life expectancy due to treatment of hypertension and other things and cessation of smoking and so on, or cut down on smoking. Still, we have tended to think more about the doctor-patient interaction as the main currency, whereas population health is where, uh, for example, social determinants of health, whether you have a place to buy uh, healthy food, whether uh, the neighborhood is violent or not, and so on. Um, is really going to be the key, not so much to the pandemic, but to a long-term turnaround in health inequities. And um, uh, one of the things that we uh, have been doing is trying to bring those with knowledge and interest and expertise in population health and public health together with, uh, with the medical profession. And we haven't always made that juncture. I take my role in failing to do that. I've been in the academic medicine profession since 1980 as a faculty physician and before that as, as a chief resident. And we just never really made, made that connection. So I think toward the future, we really have to do that much more. And um, forgive me, I don't mean this to sound uh, pedantic or like a sermon, but um, shame on us that we haven't found a way to deal with health equities in this country for whatever, by whatever mechanism, by whatever means. and. Um, whether it's the way we deal with incarcerated populations or homeless uh, in, in this uh, day and age of an enormous addiction pandemic that's also happening, uh, we, we're going to have risks of those who are in uh, inpatient uh, residential addiction centers and so on. We just have to do more about some of these very, very uh, basic problems that are the interface between social phenomena, economic phenomena, and the medical care system. There's an interesting book you probably are all aware of, in case you haven't run into it, it's called Deaths of Despair by um, Ann Case and Angus Deaton, husband and wife economist team, uh, both emeritus from Princeton. 
uh, he and Nobel laureate, and they talk about the uh, addiction uh, and uh, drug overdose and alcoholism problems in the country, and they lay some of the problems at the feet of the healthcare healthcare system. So a lot of these things uh, need to happen. Let me take advantage of your question to talk a little bit about my own crystal ball uh, about this pandemic. Now, in terms of my ability to predict, let me point out that growing up in Los Angeles, when I was in high school, I bet one of my classmates a pretty good amount of money for a high school kid that Ronald Reagan would never be elected governor of California. So you want to take whatever I predict with a grain of salt. But I'm going to predict nonetheless that uh, roughly three months from now, we will be in a period of relative calm, unless there's a big surge from reopening in certain places too soon. We will be in an area of uh, relative calm because it'll be summertime. It'll be before any recurrence of the virus may, may occur. I believe we'll have some treatment uh, options by then. In the fall, roughly six months from now, I'm very worried about a recurrence of the virus and also the juxtaposition of an influenza season with any recurrence of the COVID uh, situation. And then a year from now, roughly, I think we'll be in a much, much better place because we'll have vaccine. And our only, our only problem there is going to be if our neighbors and friends will all take the vaccine. And we're also in a peculiar situation right now where there's a lot of concern in certain quarters by certain folks, very well-meaning, want to protect their kids and are worried about vaccine. Uh, some of that came from a, a 1998 study published in The Lancet, one of the most prominent medical journals, that showed a link between autism and vaccinations. That study turned out to be fraudulent. It was retracted. The person who was the lead author was stripped of his medical license, and follow-up studies showed that it was all baloney. But you can't blame the general public for being confused if one of the top medical journals publishes something and then later says, well, that was all wrong, sorry. And so it is confusing. And although I very strongly disagree with the concern about vaccines, one of the safest things that we can do for our kids' health and for our own health, there's a lot of concern about it. And development of a vaccine will only work if we take the vaccine. So that's a three-month, six-month, 12-month sort of a prediction from a guy who thought Reagan wouldn't go anywhere. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, doctor, I'm uh, calling you from Chicago, and I have a rather naive question. Um, it, it's really about masks. Have there any, been any studies um, that have been conducted showing, you know, the overall um, uh, efficacy of using masks? Um, um, you know, Bill, uh, it's a great question. I, I, uh, I, I'm jealous you're in Chicago now. I Spent many happy years in Chicago uh, as a failing musician, although I, I did usually make enough money when I performed to cover my drinks, but it was sort of a break even. But anyway, um, the, uh, the question you're asking is a really, really, really important question. And um, the um, uh, tell me again how you put the last part of the question. I wanted to focus well, on two aspects. You know, it's really now now that I'm in Chicago, I was just in Colorado for seven weeks and yes. totally socially distanced, totally, you know, we our family has stayed away from everybody. Yes. Now, in order to go out in the street or just I, I live in an apartment building, I'm wearing a mask. I wear a mask just, when I walk in the building. I, I got gotcha. you. 
So just the mask. Not so the I'm protecting distance. other people, but if they're wearing masks, I feel protected. So yeah, so it's just the masks, not the social distancing. I wrote down the wrong thing. Well, it's really, it's a combination of the two. It is, Thank you're you. right. Okay. So um, in terms of masks, there's masks and then there's masks. So the um, uh, when you see someone uh, in a hazmat situation, you'll see a, a mask that has a a little separate uh, way to filter air, oxygen. It may have a little device sticking on the side of it. Um, one step down from that is the so-called N95 mask. Those are ones that are fit to you. Uh, it's hard to wear them for a very long time, but they're fit more closely to the face. And they've been shown to be pretty efficacious. And then there's everything else. And as you know, because of a shortage of those supplies as well, extremely frustrating to me, in our country that we've had a shortage of these things. But those uh, uh, kinds of uh, shortages have caused us to do all kinds of different things to produce masks because there weren't enough to go around. And what there were, we want to preserve for the, for the medical workers, for the healthcare workers. So I'm not aware of any formal studies. There may be ones, and I apologize if I don't know about them. I'm not aware of studies that have taken the myriad, myriad kinds of materials and things that we are using now. Um, I'll show you an example. Forgive me for stepping away for one second to the other side of this room. So um, my, my, my wife, who is um, uh, also a friend of Andrew's and is a, a retired um, a molecular biologist and now an artist, um, she was asked by uh, friends of hers in the very beginning of the pandemic to develop a way to make masks. And she knocked out dozens of masks that are like this. They're made of um, uh, shop towels, shop cloths, uh, not cloths, shop paper. You know, it comes on a roll and you use it in a shop. And she has a, um, a hairband on each side, you put it over your ear, you put it across your face. She used a paper clip as the uh, nose, nose piece. Well, there's no studies that I'm aware of to use shop paper as a, as a mask. It's probably better than nothing. If I'm wearing this mask and I sneeze, it's going to stop a lot of those droplets from getting out in the environment. So we're, we're flying a, a little bit uh, by, the, by the seat of our pants with these things. But um, we are gearing up as a country to manufacture more masks. And the more we manufacture ones that are used in the normal medical professions, the more confidence, Bill, you can have that it's going to be uh, being protective. Still, whatever the material is and whatever you're using, I believe it's better than nothing to stop you from getting droplets out into the environment. I hope that answers it. Yeah, thank you, doctor. Thank you. Yes. Robert Korn. Yes, um, doctor, thank you. Um, I read an article, I'm wondering whether you can lend credibility to it. Uh, I read that uh, SARS and MERS um, didn't cause the kind of um, an pandemic that uh, we're dealing with now, perhaps principally because the genetic material as it mutated um, dissipated and um, changed to a degree that it was no longer um, uh, as infectious. I read that they believe that perhaps this coronavirus also is mutating in that way and form that 
it could, in a, in a sense, uh, mutate and, in a, in a sense, destroy some of its genetic makeup. You know, I'm, I'm not familiar with that study about SARS and MERS. And uh, unfortunately for me to be able to do a better job with you all, I'm not an infectious disease person. I'm a lowly cardiologist. That's my practice. Um, so I, I can't actually tell you the answer, cannot tell you the answer to that. But I'm going to write it down because I want to give you an answer like I want to give your colleague that HBR article. So give me one second. And um, I'm going to write down something here. And uh, Nancy, again, I'll send you something uh, related to this as a follow-up that, if you wish, you can share with the participants from today. Thank you. Yep, I'll, I'll follow up on that. Uh, probably it'll be tomorrow until I get back to you. David, let, let me ask you a question. How, why is everybody so certain that there'll be a vaccine? Well, that's a great question, Andrew. It's, it's uh, optimism born of many, many, many uh, successful vaccines that have been developed in the past and uh, uh, a much more uh, clear understanding of the genetic basis of some of these uh, enemies that we're fighting. Um, I have to admit, I'm one of those optimists who believe it will happen. Uh, part of my optimism is that there are so many terrific labs, Andrew, working on this, that I, I believe there's a very, very good chance, but we don't have it yet. And it's gonna be a while till we know that the vaccine, whatever is developed is safe and efficacious. So it's possible we won't end up with one, but I, I believe we will. Dawn, Dawn Erlinson, you have a question? Yes, thank you, I got unmuted. Um, so doctor, I've done some reading, like why do we have all of these viruses? And it seems that the source uh, 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 are bats. And um, one of the researchers that studied this uh, said that it would be very helpful if humans stopped encroaching on bat habitat because it stresses them out, causing them to shed more saliva, urine, and feces, which contain these viruses. I don't know if you've looked into this at all, but apparently the, the other SARS and the MERS, they're all originating from, from bats. Well, you know, a lot of, it's a great question, thank you. A lot of diseases that we face in humanity, a lot of infectious diseases are so-called zoonotic diseases. That is, they come from animals. Many, many diseases start from animals and make that leap, so to speak. I mean that in a, in a, a figurative sense uh, to humans. I have read the, the, the material about, the, about bats. And um, as uh, populations have increased, as we've changed uh, habitats throughout the world, um, we've changed the normal balance of nature. And you know we could have a whole session um, uh, with somebody better than me, Andrew, to talk about um, what, what sorts of health risks there are because of changes, climate change and other things that have changed because of uh, uh, human populations and the growth of the human population in the world um, and automobiles and many other things. But that's where we are right now. And so it's not going to change, not going to go back. So I would say that um, understanding more like the studies you're talking about or the articles you're talking about would be key to helping us to avoid things. But I want to be quick to add that um, uh, this uh, was this novel coronavirus was something, even having some handle on where it may have come from, is still a puzzle to us in a lot of ways. So we could try to do some preventive things for sure. 
But as your colleague asked in an earlier question, even viruses that are already out in the community um, and uh, and uh, are are not going to are not going to go away totally will mutate. That's the reason that you have a different flu test, a flu flu shot every year. And so I would say that the um, uh, the studies of uh, how zoonotic diseases get to humans is very important. Studies of how our habitats, our our uh, lifestyles have changed animal habitats has got to be an important piece of this. But at the end of the day. We have to find a way to deal with what, what we have right now. But the question you're asking or the point you're bringing up is very important as we look to the future for our kids and grandkids to try to find ways to prevent these kinds of things from happening. The odds are very high that they will keep on happening because of all of the factors that we've been talking about today. But it's a very interesting, interesting set of issues that you bring up. So thank you. Dr. Scorton talks about how hospitals were blindsided by a disease we still do not fully understand. And until recently, there was no agreed upon treatment plan for patients sick with COVID-19. But Dr. Scorton is optimistic about the timeline for future testing and treatment, including new antiviral medicines, antigen tests that could allow for results in as few as 15 minutes, and a vaccine that could conceivably be available to the public as early as this January. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. 